The worst moment was realizing that the pilot had no idea what to do next. This is what a pastor and his wife recalled as they were recounting what it was like as they were traveling on a small private plane in South Africa in the midst of mission work. There had been some mechanical problems early on, but they thought they had fixed those before takeoff. As they flew, they found themselves over, over an open brush land, which went on for miles and miles when the plane's electrical system began to fail. They lost radio contact. The automatic direction finder stopped. Even the gas gauge failed. The only thing that was working was the engine itself. Without any landmarks anywhere, they were lost. Only the sun told them roughly what direction they were going and how far they had come. But with a strong side wind, they couldn't tell whether they were drifting off course or whether they were overcorrecting. Either way, they were in danger of missing their destination by a long shot. The pastor and his wife may not have realized the danger that they were in if the pilot had not turned around to talk to them. He had been biting his nails and his lip was bleeding, which they took as a bad sign. He explained the situation to them, that he had no idea where they were and they didn't seem to be in any airports in the region where they could land or even get the plane fixed or stay for the night. The pilot handed the map back to the pastor in desperation and said, well, see if you can figure out where we are. They couldn't. After several more hours, more by the providence of God than the skill of the pilot, they reached their destination. Now this story teaches us a very important lesson. When the pilot can't figure out what's going on, the whole plane is in trouble. This principle is what lies behind the instructions of Paul to Titus about the lives and the leadership of elders. If elders are not qualified and if elders do not know what's going on, the whole church is in trouble. The island of Crete had been evangelized. People from all different towns had been born again and become followers of Jesus Christ. And Titus was left there by Paul to put, to, that he might put what remained in order, which including appointing elders to shepherd the people of God. This morning, as we continue in our series on Titus, we're going to discuss what elders are, the principles of eldership, and the qualifications of elders. We're going to look at Titus chapter 1. We're going to read down starting in verse 5 through 9. Here's what Paul writes to Titus. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. 
For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Let's pray before we dive into this text. Lord, I come to you and I I ask you, Lord, as that last song just declared, that your Holy Spirit would fill this place up, your Holy Spirit would fill me up, that you would open up our minds and our eyes to understand your word, to comprehend what it is saying, to have a clarity of the importance of of elders in a church, the importance of of qualified, competent, God-fearing pastors to lead, to shepherd, to oversee, to guide God's people. Remembering always that you are the good shepherd. that we are your sheep. Thank you for laying your life down for your sheep, for being the gate, the door. God, we just want to be the church that you've called us to be. That's our only desire. Lord, we're not asking for fame. We're not asking for glory. We're not asking to be known around DFW or to be known around Texas or to be known around the United States, to be known around the world. We're simply wanting to be a local, biblical, ordinary church that you use. And we know that cannot happen unless eldership is proper and good and led by you. So help us today as we study your word. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to first look, because this is what Paul does, I want to first look at the description of what an elder is. What is an elder? Now, the word elder, just the the word elder, originally meant one who is advanced in age. You may have heard the phrase, respect your elders. Right? Respect those that are older than you. Respect those that are advanced in age. That's what the word originally meant. But the church began using this word as an official position in the body. It was to be the leaders who were spiritually mature. So the church function of elder... The church function of elder has nothing really to do with the maturity of age, but the maturity of spirit. You do not have to have a pastor who is older than you. That is not a qualification for what an elder is. The office of elder, which we call pastor, the office of elder is to be held by, this position of leadership is to be held by people who are spiritually Mature. It was a title that was associated with the shepherding ministry of the church. I want to talk for a moment about 
the language of shepherd being used to lead the church. This idea of shepherding over, over people has a long historical tradition. Even the pagans used the language of shepherd to refer to their leaders. For instance, the, the Egyptian pharaoh was called the shepherd of Egypt. So this language of a, of, a, of a shepherd ruling, guiding, leading, instructing the people goes all the way back. The biblical tradition uses this metaphor as well. With Yahweh being set up as the ultimate shepherd of his people. So what the Bible does is the Bible says there is a shepherd of God's people and it's God. God is the ultimate shepherd of his people. Now, in the Old Testament, can you think of a famous passage of Scripture that may refer to the Lord as shepherd? Psalm 23, right? It's the first one that probably comes to our mind. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want for anything. That's what David says. David didn't just make this up. David wasn't sitting around one day going, you know what? I think shepherd would be a good word to use for God. This tradition was started by God before David ever came. God referring to himself as one who leads his flock, as one who provides for his flock, as one who tends to his sheep and takes care of them. In Isaiah 40 verse 11, God says this, or Isaiah says this of God, like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead them. In the Old Testament, God is the shepherd of Israel. But God called men to be shepherds on his behalf, to be under shepherds, to be a literally the word that is used in the Old Testament referred to a hired shepherd. So you would have a shepherd who would hire shepherds to take care of the sheep with him. The word that is used in the Old Testament for people who are going to take care of the sheep for God would be under shepherds or hired shepherds. God set up these human leaders to lead on his behalf. But it doesn't take you long to read in the Old Testament when you find out that these shepherds, these human leaders, do not lead as they should. They do not lead on God's behalf. So what God does in the Old Testament is he promises there is going to come a human shepherd who will do this. So in the Old Testament, you have these human shepherds failing miserably. You have God judging Israel and the sh these shepherds for not doing it properly. And then God promises there's going to come one, though, who will actually be the shepherd that will shepherd on the Father's behalf. And here's what it says in Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 24 and 25. My servant David shall be king over them. Now, here's the thing. David was already dead. So when he says, my servant David shall be king over them, he's not talking about King David. He's talking about one who will come like King David. And they shall all have one shepherd. 
They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. Of course, when Jesus of Nazareth shows up, he claims to be this good shepherd of God. John chapter 10, verse 14 and 16, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Now, you've got to remember, he is not just grabbing this metaphor out of nowhere. You you could read John 10 and think, oh, Jesus just, you know, related himself to being a shepherd. This all of this in John 10 finds its roots in the Old Testament. God, the father called himself the good shepherd. And then he says, there is coming one who is going to rule on my behalf. There is coming one who is going to be the king of my people and the shepherd of my people. And then Jesus comes and says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own known me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. In other words, I've got sheep that are not just Jewish people. I've got Gentile sheep, and they must come in also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Exactly what God promised in Ezekiel chapter 37. And then you know what Jesus does? Jesus, as the good shepherd, tells his followers, I'm leaving. The good shepherd is going to leave. And it's actually good that I leave you because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the helper who's going to come. And he's going to fill you with power to accomplish my purposes and to be my witnesses. And before Jesus leaves, he tells his people, his followers, his apostles, and more specifically, even Peter, you're going to be under shepherds for me. You're going to be shepherds on my behalf. You remember what Jesus says after Peter denies him three times, after he makes food for him, for the the, the apostles, he gathers them all up and he takes Peter aside and he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, you know that I love you. And three times he asked asked him that question. And Peter says, you know that I love you. And Jesus' response each time was, feed my sheep, take care of my sheep, tend to my sheep. I'm leaving you as one of my under-shepherds to take care of my sheep. It's interesting. Peter then uses that same idea from John 21 as he's writing his letter in 1 Peter. He says, so I exhort the elders among you. I exhort the under-shepherds among you, the shepherds among you. I exhort you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. I love the beautiful promise. This is a fulfillment of it, of Jeremiah 3.15. And the Lord said, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. So look at this giant story. God comes along and says, I am the shepherd of my people. And I'm going to call under-shepherds to help lead my people. Those under-shepherds fail miserably. 
They prey on the sheep. They take advantage of the sheep. They don't care about the sheep as they should. So God punishes them and then says, but there is coming one like David who is going to be my shepherd. And Jesus comes and says, I am that shepherd. And I'm going to gather up the flock, but I am going to use under shepherds after my own heart to help tend and feed and love my sheep. In Titus 2 verse 7, where it says that this shepherding ministry also uses the word overseer and steward. These are not two different offices. So it's not like we have the elder office, the overseer office, office and the steward office. Some, some denominations do do that. They break that up into three different offices. I don't believe that's what's happening here. I believe it's one office, and, it, and these other two words are descriptions of what the elders should be doing. The elders should be overseeing the sheep. The the elders should be stewarding the body of God. What has been given to them to take care of, they ought to be stewarding. So these two words are not dealing with different offices, but the same office, but describing their ultimate duties as under shepherds for Jesus. So that is the, the description of where we get the idea of elder from. Now, before we get to the qualifications... I think there are three features or principles of the office of elder that we need to talk about. First, when at all possible, a church should not be governed by a single elder, but a plurality of elders. In verse 5, he says, This is why I left you, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders... In every town as I directed you. Paul tells Titus he should appoint elders in every town. The language there doesn't mean one in every town, but a multiple group of elders in every town. The apostles themselves were first governing the church as a plural body. There was a council that was gathered in Acts chapter 15 when they were having to discuss whether or not Christians, new Christians that are Gentiles should be circumcised or not. They had to get together as a plurality of leaders to come to the conclusions that they did. With a plurality of elders, what you get is a plurality of gifts, a plurality of perspectives, a plurality of of wisdom so that they might arrive at, at wiser and more godly decisions. If you just have one elder making all the decisions and no one that they can really lean on, it'd be much easier to not make near as wise of decisions. But if you've got a plurality of elders and they are discussing what's best for the church, how do we minister to our people? How do we love our people? How do we govern our church and and lead our church? And you've got a plurality of, of perspectives and gifts and wisdom, you can come to better decisions. Also, by the way, given the ongoing reality of sin in our lives, a plurality of elders keeps each other accountable. It keeps each other accountable. Now, we know we see pastors fall left and right all over the place. So even with the plurality of elders, there is, uh, you're going to have the fall of pastors and elders. But when a pastor falls or sins, They have to deal with that justly. And with the plurality of elders, 
you actually can do that, hold them responsible and accountable. So you, when at all possible, you need to have a plurality of elders. Second, notice the elders are to be local. Appoint elders in every town. Appoint elders in every town. By this time, there were believers located in every town in Crete, and each needed their own group of elders. They were to be called from the local congregation. They were to be called from the town in which they were going to minister. This approach grants elders close knowledge of their people, many connections in the church and in the community. This probably also meant that Titus was going to make these appointments by talking to the churches themselves to find out who are the people in this church that are, that are spiritual leaders? Who are the people in this church that can help lead this church? And that's how he came up with who should be appointed, with the advice and consent of the local church members. So there needs to be a plurality of elders. They need to be local elders. Each church needs to have their own group of plurality of elders. And third, uh, third principle to note is that the elders were male. We see this in Paul's tension in verse 6 when he states that elders are to be the husband of one wife. The Greek word for husband here specifies the male sex. They are to be males. Paul says the same thing in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. Elders are to be men. This is a matter of function and role, not equality or ability. It is about responsibility, not ability. Paul is going to elaborate on this to a degree in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, when he says these words, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now, I'm going to talk about this for a minute. Because this, this passage has been used to abuse women all over the place. It has been used to squelch the spiritual gifts and talents of women all over the place. Because people absolutize this verse. A woman should never teach a man. A woman should never have authority over a man. It has caused pastors to teach women shouldn't be bosses in companies. Women shouldn't be CEOs. Women shouldn't be police officers because you never know, you know if, they're, if they have responsibility over a man at any given time, they're going to have authority over men and that shouldn't happen. So women shouldn't be police officers. Women, and there's this list of stuff that they, they create that, that then take women and put them in a position that I don't think this passage is actually talking about. For instance, am I never supposed to learn something from my mother ever again as an adult male? Is my, is my mother ever allowed to speak truth of God's word into my life? Or should I hush her and go, wait, you are a female and I am a male. You're not supposed to teach me anything. You're supposed to remain quiet. Am I supposed to be in the hallway? And one day I'm in the hallway and here comes Elfrida and Elfrida's like, Neil, I want to show you something in God's word that, that God has shown me. This is beautiful and, and it relates to what you were talking about, but I think it goes a little bit further. Am I supposed to stop her in the hallway and go, Elfrida, you need to stop. You are in violation of 1 Timothy chapter 2 right now. You cannot teach me anything. 
Is that really what Paul's getting at here? See, I don't think it is for a multitude of reasons, but I certainly don't think it is because we have examples of Paul being taught by women and and Timothy being taught by women and women prophesying in the church in front of people. So so we need to ask the question, because there definitely is, in 1 Timothy, there definitely is some way that a woman should not teach a man and some way that a woman shouldn't have authority. There is some prohibition here. There is some limit here. Now, we need to ask, in what way should a woman not teach a man or have authority over men? Some kind of prohibition. What is it? The verb here that Paul uses in this passage, translated authority, is the only time in the New Testament that it's ever used. So we can't go to other passages where this word is used to see what he's talking about. We don't have that. It's actually very rarely used in any Greek literature, biblical or not. So that makes it a little bit harder for us to figure out what this means. But let me give you some idea of what I think he's talking about. Because two verses later, do you know what he begins talking about? The qualifications for being an elder. I think what Paul is getting at here is that women should not teach as elders of a church. They should not have the governing teaching responsibility over the church. They should not have the the ruling authority over a church. Of course, some woman can teach me something in the hallway. Of course, I'm allowed for my wife to teach me something from God's word. Of course, I can sit and listen to a a woman teach. What Paul's getting at is as the role of elder, as the role of uh, having the authority of an elder, that's what they're not supposed to have. Now, Just as a wife cannot be a husband, she cannot function in that role. Neither can a woman be an elder. She cannot function in that role. As Jesus is the groom and the head of the bride, the church, so a husband is the groom and the head of his earthly bride, so elders of the church function as the head of the church. It's about function and responsibility. It's not about ability. It's not about whether a woman can teach better than than me or Brother James and be the governing teacher of, of our church. That has nothing to do with it. It has to do with responsibility, about function. That's what it has to do with. Not ability, not equality. Function and role. So, three principles. There should be a group. Of, of elders in a church, when at all possible, a plurality of them. Two, they sh- every church, every local church ought to have a plurality of elders. And three, those elders who have the, the main responsibility of authority and teaching in the church ought to be males. Now let's talk about the qualifications. We're going to break them down into the uh, in three different categories, all right? One category is the public influence. 
The second category is the personal virtue, and the third category is the prophetic devotion. We're going to first look at the public influence. This first group of qualifications reflect on the public life of an elder as husband and father. It says first that anyone who should be above reproach, an elder should be above reproach. This does not mean that an elder is to be sinless. But rather, an elder must have earned a sterling reputation from his conduct in the community. He should be known as someone of character. It could be translated blameless, meaning that their virtue could not be spoken ill against in the public eye. The public could not point at this person and say, that person doesn't have a good reputation. That person doesn't have good character. But I think... He has two specific contexts in mind as a husband and as a father. He should have a above above reproach reputation as a father and a husband. He says that in verse six, that he should be the husband of one wife, literally reading a one woman man. This is referring to the faithfulness and the devotion of a man to his wife. Loving his wife as Christ loved the church. You are not to pick unfaithful men to lead. If they are unfaithful to their wife, they should not lead. They cannot be elders if, they are, if they're not a one-woman kind of man. Now, this brings up two questions pretty quickly. People say, well, can a single man be an elder then? Short answer is yes. Given that Paul says, I would rather, it's better for you not to be married so that you can minister. This would also exclude Paul from being an elder. It would have excluded Jesus from being an elder. Nowhere in God's word does it state that a single person, by their singleness, is not above reproach to be an elder. Here's another question. Can a divorced man or remarried man be an elder? Now, people have taken this phrase, husband of one wife, and they've messed it all up. And they have thought that means, well, if you're remarried, then you're out. You can't be an elder and you can't be a deacon because you're remarried. But when it literally is translated a one woman kind of man... It's not talking about their marital status as it is so much about their marital faithfulness. If a man's wife has died, he may remarry and be an elder. This just happened to Brother Tony Evans. His wife passed away. He has now remarried. He is not disqualified from being a pastor because he has been been remarried. He was faithful in his marriage. He is a one-woman kind of man. His wife has died and he now has remarried. And he will be a one-woman kind of man to his new wife by the grace of God. But what what about a man whose wife leaves him or divorces him and he is in no way responsible? He has been faithful to his wife. He has loved his wife, but she has, has cheated on him. She's had an affair. She's left him. She's abandoned him, whatever. Paul says that person is free, free to remarry. Not only is he free to remarry, 
he can be an elder. He is not in sin. He has done nothing wrong. The sin of his wife would not preclude him from being an elder as long as he was a one-woman kind of man. We're talking about being above reproach in, in marital and sexual life. A man who is faithful. The second way that a man should be above reproach in the public eye is this. His children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, the Greek word for children here does not simply mean a son or a daughter. It means a minor still living at home. This is talking about a child that is living in the home and under the responsibility of their father. These are not adult children. They're totally responsible for their own lives. Okay? So let's say you raise your children to love Jesus. You're a pastor. Uh, and, and, well, this is, the, this is uh, John Piper was in this position. His son Abraham has rejected uh, Christianity. As an adult, he abandoned the faith. That's not John Piper's responsibility and makes him not eligible to be an elder. Okay? He's responsible for his own choices and his own beliefs. That's on him. The word believer actually means faithful. It's not speaking about the internal regenerate heart of the children, but the character of the family as a whole. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, 4-5, he must manage his own household well. So here's what I think Paul's getting at. Paul is saying, if you are a, a, an elder, you need to manage your own household well. You need to love your children. You need to raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. You, you need to control them. You need to, to raise them right. And, and they shouldn't be living in your home and be lawbreakers or irreligious and wild. That's what these words mean when it says debauchery and insubordination. It's literally talking about one who is lawless, one who is irreligious, one who is wild. If we had children in our home that were rebellious and and irreligious and lawbreakers and and I as a father had not raised them better and I had not uh, controlled and managed my household well, then I would be excluded from being an elder because it will hurt the, the entire reputation of the church if the elder can't even manage his own home well. Now, once they become adults, that's on them. I can't manage them anymore. Does that make sense? So it's about what's happening in the home. So this first Public influence is being above reproach in the way that you are married and the way that you you are faithful in your um, marital life and your sexual life and the way that you manage your home. Then you have these personal virtues that are listed and five of them are negative and six of them are positive and seven of them are positive. These are just this list that he rattles off. And so for the sake of time, I'm just going to say something about each one real quick and we'll go down these to make sure we just at least know what they are. The first one, he says, that an elder should not be arrogant. This is a man who is stubborn and self-willed. Think of someone who is self-serving, domineering, and doing it for their own glory and fame. Not quick-tempered. This is a man whose spirit is hostile, resentful, and angry. Not a drunkard. 
This is a man who is dependent upon alcohol and suffers the consequences of it. The Bible strongly rebukes drunkenness and contrasts it with godly character and being filled with the Spirit. An elder is to not be violent. This is a man who is either physical, mental, emotional, and or spiritually a bully. We have got many pastors who may not physically put their hands on anybody, but they are mentally, emotionally, and spiritually violent toward their people. They bully those people into into being in submission to them. Not greedy. This is a man who is in ministry for the personal enrichment or, or material, profitable connections that they get. Now the positives. An elder should be hospitable. This is a man who is ready and open to offer his time and resources to meet the needs of the people of God and those outside the church. An elder is to be a lover of good. This is a man who is passionate and embodying good himself and zealous to see what is good flourishing in and out of the church. An elder is to be self-controlled. This is a man who is thoughtful in his actions, sensible, steady, and dependable. They are to be upright. This is a man who is just and fair. Doesn't show partiality. Holy. Elders are to be holy. This is not the common word for holiness like sanctification. This is a man who, is de- who has devout enthusiasm in his worship. He's passionate about his worship of the Lord. Disciplined. This is a word that is found only here in the New Testament and is probably being used by Paul to apply to all of the lists in this second section. It is remarkable that it takes 20 years to build a reputation, but without discipline, It takes you 20 seconds to lose it all. So I think Paul is putting in this word discipline to say you must be disciplined in all of these areas that have just been listed. Now the third section of qualifications or prophetic devotion, this last group of qualifications, refer to the prophetic abilities that an elder needs in order to perform his role as a teacher. It says... That he must hold firm, verse 9, to the trustworthy word as taught. This is a man who loves and has a fierce devotion to and attachment to the teachings of Scripture. Elders must be devoted and passionate and love Scripture. They build their life and ministry on it. Because... They're going to have to give instruction to sound doctrine. That's what it says next in verse 9. They have to give instruction to sound doctrine. This is using that word that they are passionate about and that they love and that they are attached to and devoted to. They are using it to exhort and encourage their people. Loving God's word and then using God's word and and bringing it alongside this, this word here for instruct. Literally could mean encourage, 
to come alongside with. So it's the idea of, of taking God's word that you love and that you're attached to and that you're building your ministry on and then coming alongside your people with that word and encouraging them to obey it, encouraging them to follow it. But also being passionate and attached and devoted to the word so that you can rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. This is a man who defends God's word against false teaching, who refutes those who stand against healthy, life-protecting, life-preserving doctrine on behalf of his people. There comes a time when elders who are attached and devoted and passionate lovers of God's word has to rebuke anyone or anything that stands against sound doctrine. It may be that you have to correct people in your own church. It may be that you have to correct stuff that's being taught outside the church that might be infiltrating into the church. But an elder has to be able to do both those things. They've got to be able to take God's word and encourage the people and also take God's word and rebuke against false teaching. Rebuke against things that, that can hurt the people they've been given responsibility to. Now, I know this has been a lot. But it's very important. You don't want to be in a plane where the pilot looks at you and says, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to fly this. I don't know where we are. Here's the map. Fend for yourselves. And grabs the one parachute and jumps out of the plane. <laughs> and by the way, there are elders of churches who have done that very thing. Who have been responsible for the people of their church. And when things got tough or a better opportunity came, they put on their parachute and jump out of the plane and leave the people to fend for themselves. The consistency of leadership here at Calvary Hill Baptist Church is one of the greatest blessings that this church has, could ever experience. Elders are a gift to the church, but churches better make sure that those elders that are leading them are not like our pilot. We have countless stories today of churches in our country who were governed by men who did not take their role as under-shepherd seriously. And I, I want to say this because I think it's very important for us as elders to remember and for you to remember about us. You are not our sheep. You are not our sheep. You are God's sheep. We're hired hands to just steward God's sheep. You do not belong to us. In fact, elders must never forget we are sheep as well. We're sheep. We have a, a dual role. We're sheep right with you. But we also hold this, this function, this responsibility to help teach and govern God's sheep. 
We must never forget as elders that we are in desperate need of the good shepherd leading us. Leading all of us together. We as a church, I can say this about the elders of this church, we do take our responsibility seriously. We're not going to do it perfectly, especially my dad. I mean, he's just not going to do it. <laughs> we're not going to do it perfectly. We're going we're gonna to fail you. Don't put your hope and trust in us. Put it in the good shepherd. But we do take our role to teach and have authority in this church humbly. But we take it very seriously. We want to encourage. We want to uplift. We want to see God do great things in all of our lives. And we see ourselves as one of you. We don't see ourselves as above you. We see ourselves alongside of you with a function that's just different. There are a lot of churches that can be set up in such a way that the elders um, are set up as some kind of different class of Christian than everybody else in their church. Um, that's why I wanted to end today with saying we recognize we're sheep right alongside of you. We're not a different class of Christian. We've got a different function, not a different class. As a husband, I have a different function than my wife. I'm not a different class of, of Christian. I'm not better. I'm not smarter. I'm not, I don't have things together you know, way better than anybody else does. But we're taking these things seriously. And we know that that if we don't, the whole plan will be in trouble.